Hey, John Michael Lander. How is it going, my friend? Very well, Sean. How are you doing? Yeah, fantastic. Whereabouts in the world are you? I am actually in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Yeah, I did spend a lot of time in America, but I never got out to Ohio. And I know you've got a harrowing story. And because of the restrictions on our channel, we have a legal requirement to ask you, do you waive your anonymity? Yes. All right. Thank you. Can you start out by telling the viewers a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. Uh, I'm John Michael Lander, and I'm a former Olympic diving contender and sex abuse survivor. As a 14-year-old Olympic-bound athlete, the adults that were entrusted with my training groomed and sexually abused me and uh, kind of gave me the whole time was when I was like learning to be exciting and happy, I was filled with guilt and shame. And yet I still went on to win gold medals at the Norway and the Danish Cups. And so one of the uh, predators that I had to deal with was um, a doctor at a university, and they became part of this group of professionals. And what these professionals would do would like pass us around. And so that then they would sponsor us and help us get our Olympic dream. And that's basically the whole thing that's happened. That's, that's like in a nutshell. Oh, good grief. What was it like for you growing up? Well, I grew Before up in a farmland, yeah. a farmhouse, and it was really, really crazy because I didn't understand. I was 14 again, and uh, my first sexual experience was with one of the professionals. And I just remember this whole thing as being, wait a minute, what's going on here? And yet my body kind of froze and I couldn't move. I, I kind of knew that it was wrong. But I still didn't understand what the whole meaning was. I, I don't think I could wrap my mind around what was happening. And this started to happen in a lot because what happened was that a lawyer saw that I, I did really well at the Junior Olympics. I took eight and I was in the newspaper and he connect, contacted my mother. And so he groomed my mother for a couple of months before he ever talked to me. And later on, what we found out is that he had actually went to our, our team and started talking to the people at the team and groomed them and said, I'm going to bring all these people in to help sponsor the team so I can just focus on this one person. And that's how it all set up. It wasn't until the, uh, the team was in place and my parents were on board, did he ever come talk to me. And then that's how it all started to move. It was all this grooming process. And I just want to let everybody know that in my case, the grooming was very slow and methodical. And I had no idea what was actually happening. All I saw was this could help my parents. This could help me. Um, and what the other thing that they told my mother was that for all the professionals that were helping me, they would pay back to the family. So like my sister had a sledding accident and had to have reconstructive surgery. Everything was paid for. And the other thing that they used was like a scare tactic with my mother, that if I didn't show up and I wasn't there at the right time and I didn't make everybody happy, then they, my parents would have to pay everything back. And if they couldn't pay it back, then they would take them, you know, and prosecute them and turn it all around them. So that's basically how it all developed. So you said you grew up on a farm. How did your parents meet? How did my parents meet? Uh, my parents met at a, a place called Hamilton, Ohio, which is a, a further south. And my mother was very wealthy and my father was on the poor side of town. And so they kind of met in the middle across the bridge and what was it like then what was your like earliest memories on the farm they were great everything was amazing everything was really really nice uh there were things that i didn't understand you know uh my father 
was kind of distant. He had a bit of a temper and uh, he, he was an alcoholic. Um, he would, you know, when he would get in his drunken stupors, he would climb into my bed at night and, and, and cuddle with me. And that kind of evolved a little bit. Later on, we found out that he was sexually abused with the Catholic Church as an altar boy. So he was kind of like dealing with that, those demons at the same time I was growing up. But I remember life as being very happy and carefree. I, I, I would run around the farm. Everything was just part of this joy of exploring things. And I didn't understand as I got older the ramifications. So I never had any kind of talk about sex or anything like that. So when this opportunity showed up, it was about painting more on the fact that this would get me to the Olympics and get me into a scholarship for the university. And that's the goal that we went with. Can you remember what subjects you enjoyed at school? Yes, writing. English was my favorite subject. My favorite teacher was an English teacher. Well, Actually, she was probably the first person that started to wonder what happened. What attracted you to writing? I always liked to tell stories. I used to create stories as a, a kid, and I would... Um, I, I, that, that's what I would make for Christmas gifts. I would write stories and bound them and put them in books and, and give them to my parents for Christmas because I didn't have anything else to give them. So that was my way of being creative and, and telling my stories. And I had a, an amazing imagination as a kid. How was it for you with sports? Sports started out really well. Um, I started diving when I was 12. By the time I was 14, I took eighth at the Junior Olympics. And I had made uh, two international teams at the Norway Cup and the Danish Cup. And I also got to go to the Canadian Cup. So this was really one of those things that kind of just happened. Um, and it was like, I guess I was gifted. And I started to do it. And it, it really gave me the dream that I could get out and see the world. And that's basically what was happening. And then when the lawyer came into view, it was almost in a way like a gift. Because now I knew that I could go forward. I had the support. I had the financial support now. All I had to do was focus on my diving. And that was one of the things the lawyer had me do. He had me sign a contract. And in the contract, he said there were three things I had to make sure I did. I had to dive as best, the best I could and win as many titles as I could. I had to do really well in school. And I had to make sure that the, the professionals were happy. If there was any bad you know, reports or anything, we would have a meeting. And luckily, I didn't have any reports. Do you think growing up on a farm contributed to your athletic ability? Probably, because I would jump off things and flip off things. I created a tire where I'd bounce off and do somersaults in the air. It, it was just that freedom. I, I just felt like I could do whatever I wanted. And, and we were you know, not close to anybody else. So it was kind of like isolated in that sense that there was not any worries of being too loud. But it, it was this whole about growing and, and experiencing life. What was excitement of what was going to happen the next day? What was I going to see? Did I see a deer in the front yard? Were, were there raccoons in the backyard? And it was all about that explore, exploration as a child. So, you know, this horrific stuff started when you were 14. Before that age then, had you had relations with other people? No, no, not in, not in this sexual content. Um, I, I was, it was joked about that when I was a kindergartner, I asked a young girl down the, the road, 
to be my girlfriend and that we were going to get married. And I gave her a ring in the grocery store and she lost it in the meat department. And we joked about that whole thing. But um, other than that, I just knew that I liked people and I wanted to be around them. And I, I didn't care if they were boys or girls. I just wanted to be a part of everything. And in school, sex education? Oh, none. There wasn't any. I mean, we, we heard, we learned about condoms and they showed a bowl. And if you wanted one, you could get them, but that was it. They never talked about what to look for, what to worry about. Um, is someone uh, crossing the line? You know, we, we, we didn't hear any of that. And what about any parents or family members telling you about the bees and the birds? No, no. Uh, mom and dad did not talk about that. Uh, and I, I don't know why. But they just kind of like skirted around that. And I think that could have changed a lot of things. I could have maybe opened up dialogues a lot more so that I could ask questions. Um, so I was doing a lot of this exploring and dealing with all this on my own. So when you say exploring, what do you mean by that? Trying to understand what was happening. Again, I, I, I was a late bloomer. Uh, I reached puberty later than most people did. Uh, I was made fun of because I didn't have any hair on my arms or my legs. And, you know, being in the locker room was all about who had the hairiest legs and the arms. And that made you a real man. Um, I, I was smaller than most of the other guys. And so that I got picked on all the time. So I never understood exactly what all that meant. And so as I was proceeding and all of a sudden these professionals were interested in me, I, I, I didn't know how to take that um the lawyer seemed to be very much like a father figure and so i i preceded it as that that he only wanted the best from me and that's basically what he told me so i trusted him and then you know being passed to the other professionals i just assumed that this is what i had to do to become an olympian and this is what i had to, this was part of it it all became very normalized if that makes sense rather quickly I do remember one time I, I told my mother I wasn't going to go. Uh, the person had come up and they you know, were waiting for me out in the, in the driveway. And I said, I'm not going. And she said, they drove all the way here. You have to go. This is not polite. And I said, I can't go because he touches me. And I thought that, that was going to be able to save me, that she would hear those words and understand. But unfortunately, she, she kind of looked at me strangely and then she slapped me across the face. And she said, it's not nice to make up lies about people. He is a prominent person in the community. Everyone knows him. And then she finally said, if anything ever happened, it must have been your fault. And so then she said, go ahead and tell me all about your evening when you come home. And so I, I, I walked out and I realized that if my mom's not going to believe me, no one else is. So I uh, became very silent about it. I, I started to work through it in my head the best that I could. I started to find ways that I thought that I could indicate so people could ask me because I was told all the time by the, by the professionals that I was never allowed to speak about it. But I was also told that if an adult asked me a question, I had to respond to that question. So I would do things to get the adults to ask me, but sort of like um, I was very meticulous about wearing clothes and if any dirt got on my clothes, I would change. And so I decided for one week I was not going to I was going to wear the same thing every day. And I thought that the teachers at school would pick this up. No one said anything. And then I decided not to take showers. I was one of those kids who had to have two to three showers a day. And I hated the smell of chlorine and I always had to try to get it off my body. But my mother said, oh, he must be just, you know, revolting and being a teenager. And 
and he's in the pool every day, so he's pretty well clean. We don't need to worry about that. And then the final thing that I really tried was to um, drop the F-bomb as loud as I could, which was kind of odd for me because I was not the type of child that cussed. And when I did, everybody laughed at me. And so when I did do this at school, the teachers never asked me and they never called me up to the front. And they never said anything. They just kind of overlooked it. So all these indicators didn't work for me. And all I needed was someone to ask me what was wrong. And then I felt like I could share. And then I realized that I, I had to be in control somehow. And so I found ways that when I would be at these events that I, I call them events with the professionals, I would do different things. One of the things I realized that worked for a while was that if I came on to them and told them how good looking they were and that I really liked them and, oh, my God, what a, what a great future we could have together, that freaked them out. And usually what would happen is that the event would be over and I'd be dropped off somewhere and I'd have to find my way home. The other one was to make sure that they climaxed before I did. If they climaxed first, then it was never sex in my mind. That's how I created it in my head. And then it would be over. And those are the kind of things that I would, I would play with. And sometimes they would get violent. And the violent, I knew that if the violent would happen, it was going to be a quick session. It would be done quickly. But I usually would have to find my way home. So you said you had no one to talk to. Did you have any best friends or peer group to confide in? Oh, no, 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 I didn't. Um, and that I have to do uh, to say it was dealt by the, the, the coach because the lawyer had also incorporated the coach in this, this scheme, if you call it. And he became my best friend. And he, would, he basically would kind of isolate me from everybody else. He would tell me that nobody at school would understand what I'm going through. He was the only one that did understand what I was going through because he went through it himself, he said. And so he painted this picture that my teammates were jealous that I was going to all these international meets and they, they weren't yet. And so he really created this divide. And what was really interesting is that he got all the information from my teammates, what I liked, uh, who my favorite music artist was, or what movies I liked, and he played on that. And he basically isolated me. And then he started taking me to the university where I practiced, just he and I, and I'd spend night, overnights with him. And those became sexual as well. And I thought that he was my savior. I thought he was the one that was gonna help me out of this. And I thought he really understood what was happening and later on, we found out that he was getting extra money from the lawyers and the professionals to take interest in me. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I don't know what to say. Look, we're on. We're talking to John Michael. You heard what I've heard so far. It, it just, you know, it just makes your blood boil. And if anyone's got any questions for John Michael, we're halfway through the interview. Put, put the questions in the chat. Ask him whatever you want, obviously, from what he said so far. He's got no qualms about telling you, you know, exactly what happened here. And we salute his bravery for that. Thank All you. right. So I'm, I'm just going to go back, John Michael, to, you know, the, the transition into this world. How did that occur then? I mean, were you, your athletic ability was identified and these people came in. Was, was that what were the steps they, you know? Basically, the steps were that they um, contacted my mother. And then they contacted the team and they worked their, their magic, if you want to call that magic, with them to help set up everything. This is what I call the predatory um, grooming trifecta, where the predators will groom the institution first, the parent second, and then the child, which allows that predator to go undetected for years. And we saw this happen with the U.S. gymnastics team. 
and how Dr. Nasser was able to get away for over 20 years violating these young women. And, and we've seen it happen at Penn State with Jerry, with, with Jerry Sandusky and at Ohio State with you know, Dr. Strauss and University of Michigan with Dr. Anderson. So they created this, this security bond from the, the institution and from the parents. And I, I, I do know that with Dr. Nasser, he actually violated some of the gymnasts with the parents in the room with him. That's how confident he was. And he would talk in medical terms of what he was doing, why he was you know, manipulating these young ladies, why the parents were at his back so they couldn't see. And afterwards, I, I know a couple of the ladies said that they told their, their mother that what was happening. And the mother said, oh, no, no, that's what he needed to do because it's a medical treatment. So that's kind of thing. So in sports, this is really more prevalent than we really understand. It's happening in football. It's happening in hockey. In, and, and we're starting to see this more and more. And it's because we, as athletes, are afraid to come forward because there's five or six other athletes that can replace us at any time. And we saw this happen on the world stage with the U.S. gymnastics when Maggie Nichols came forward and said something Then she qualifies for the Olympic team. And the next thing we know, she's not on the Olympic team. And, and, and it's just interesting how these things, these, these power people manipulate the situation. Yeah. We've seen it in the case of priests, uh, the documentary oh, sins yes. of our father showcased it whereby these people have so much faith in the church, these acts that they're doing, the priests, are so far removed from their belief systems, it's incomprehensible. And when the kid says anything, then the kid is the one that's at fault. Anyway, right. you've had a lot of questions come in. Oh, Let's great. start with Angela, Angela Thompson. When did John Michael finally realize this stuff that was happening to him was wrong? Well, Angelina, thank you so, or Angela, thank you so much. I, I, I think that I, I intuitively knew that it wasn't right. I think the things that got me confused was that the normalization of everything being told that this is what I needed to do to be the best that I could be and to get where I wanted to go. The other thing that was really confusing to me is that my body responded. And I was told that since my body was, was responding, I must have enjoyed it, which I had no idea what was going on. I, I, I knew that as a teenager, the wind blew a certain way, I responded. And that was confusing. Um, I actually did get away after my four years of high school. I went to the, a university across out in California. And what I did not know was that they were still part of taking care of all the bills. I thought I was on scholarship. They were taking care of it. And so um, when I had to go back home, they picked me up right at the same place that I was. And what was interesting is that they had kept in touch with my mother the whole time. And she was basically telling them where I was all the time. It wasn't until I came back to Ohio and I, I decided to go to a local university and I met a dance teacher and um, she and I started talking and she says, all right, spill the beans. I can tell. I know something's up. And I finally started to trust her and started to share as much as I could. She was the one that actually initiated my escape, if you call it from that, from this group of professionals. Um, while I was in L.A. the first time, I, I started doing extra work on General Hospital, the soap opera. And so what she did is she contacted the casting directors there and said, would you take him back? And then after that, she helped find a place for me to stay. And then totally, they all shipped me away without my mother knowing where I was. Everything was cut off. That's how I got away from it. 
So I, 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 again, to this day, I still struggle with the normalization of it. Next question from Susan. Did anything happen with your dad or another situation your mother didn't believe as well? Yes. Um, this is kind of hard, hard for me to talk about. Uh, uh, one time my father came into my room and started, you know, and my mother walked in and um, she was, she, you know, she was like, Oh my God, this is God's. And then she left. I, I remember that my father got up and left. And then my mother walked back in and said, this is your fault. You caused this. Why are you doing this to me and my husband? And I just didn't know what to say. I, I, I was at a loss of words. So um, I didn't learn about my father until on his deathbed that he had been sexually abused by the Catholic Church. Uh, and so there, there are moments that I wish that I could have another talk with him just to try to figure things out. Uh, I, I remember another time when he was driving me home from practice and he pulled off into a corner uh, off the road and, and he kissed me on the mouth and he bit my lip and it was bleeding and he looked at me and he just started crying hysterically. And, and I became like the parent at that moment. And I'm, I'm trying to take care of him. And I said, everything's okay. And he says, no, no, you caused me to do this. It's the way you look. You caused me to do this. And I still, to this day, I don't understand what those words mean, but they ring in my head all the time. That's got to tear a child's brain apart because this is the person who's raised you, who you look up to, who you love in a normal healthy fashion and then there's this other side i mean how does one ever reconcile that i don't know that answer i i, I really don't sean I, that's something i think i struggle with every day even to this day and you know now that he's not here i can't go back and like talk with him and, and try to work things out uh it, it's something that i've constantly wondered could this have been what led me into the professionals so easily that I had already been normalized or been dealing with this on a sexual event. I had never had anything except for my father touching me. And so I assumed that, okay, this is what happens to all, all children. You know, I, I, I never compared it with my brothers or sisters. Um, they, it's it just one of those things that just now that I think back about it, you had asked me earlier if I had been sexually involved before the professionals and i said no and now that i think back about it that that's not actually true i think my first experience was with my father great shot thank you <laughs> whoa the question for, question question from jenny how did john finally get people to believe him about his what happened i don't think i actually got anyone to believe me for a long time uh, i i became a teacher and i was teaching high school and I had a, a sophomore come into my class to tell me that he was gay and that he had a boyfriend who was 35. And I was like, oh, why? Why so old? And he said that his mother and his grandmother were OK with this because he paid for the bills and the groceries. And that was the initial thing that brought everything back into scope for me. It kind of like opened Pandora's box for me. Then I started going, oh, my God, this is the kid my age when all this was happening for me. And so I reported it to uh, the assistant principal and, and she basically told me there wasn't anything that we could do because the mother and the grandmother were aware of it. And then she finally said, well, um, this child has a history of this. And I was like, so you're saying that it's okay? 
And I, I, I learned then that, that I couldn't stay at the school anymore. So I, I, I gave my notice. But the thing that really, really changed me is that I really went into a deep depression. And I found myself writing a suicide note to, to my partner of 18 years. And I, I went into the garage. I started the car. I was sitting there. And I know it sounds kind of corny, but I just had this urge to get out, to get out of the car and go back inside. And I did. And, and I fell apart. I, I just cried. I think the hardest, ugliest cry I've ever had. And I promised myself that I was going to break my silence then, that I couldn't do this anymore. And what I did is I actually did a TED Talk. And I publicly shared openly to everyone. And I went on and, and, I, and I wrote a couple of books about my experiences going through this time period. And that was how I started to he the healing journey for myself. But I had to first acknowledge within myself that it happened. It's so powerful that you've took that dark energy and done talks and speeches and writing and turned it into this cathartic thing. And it's not corny in the slightest. None of it is corny, John. It's deadly serious and it's absolutely heartbreaking. And everybody who's watching this right now is extremely moved by what you've told us so far. We've only got a few minutes left to talk about the you know, the, the healing part of it. The question here is from Donna Maria. When did he finally get his full support frame around him? I hope he has support. He does. Yes, uh, yeah, I, I have support now. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with me finding the right the right therapy, if that's the word I want to use, our, our, our journey. Uh, a lot of the therapists I had a problem with because they were part of this professional group as well. Doctors, lawyers, mm -hmm. judges, police officers, therapists. So I never really were able to trust therapists. I, I found my way when I was introduced to the Self-Talk Institute, which was founded by Dr. Shad Helmstetter. And that helped me change the way I think and helped me to recognize the negative self-talk because I think a lot of survivors create a, a false self so that we can understand and comprehend why the events happened in the first place. And so once I started to unravel this and finding my truth is when I started to get healing and started to um, get the support that I needed because I, I, I asked for it actually. And so I was so moved by what I learned through this group, I, I became a certified trainer and um, coach for the life of the Self-Talk Institute. So I help other survivors now. Well, that's fantastic to hear. Susan wants to know, were these people ever brought to justice? It's very interesting because um, right now there's one still in litigation and it's with one of the universities here in Ohio. And um, my, my statement has been denied three times because I was never a student of the university. I was a high school student when all this was happening. And they don't want to open that up because then that changes the dynamics of what they're focusing on. And so now they have changed the statute of limitations. So this is starting to open up again. So hopefully I will be able to see that through. A lot of the other people have passed away. So I have never had a chance to really to bring them to justice. Right. We've run out of time. Huge thank you to you, John Michael. Huge thank you to all the viewers. There was tons of questions. Uh, we, perhaps if we get John back on sometime, we can continue um, but, you know, we salute your bravery and what you, the great work that you're doing now. And it's fantastic because so many people that we've interviewed and we hear about these things happening and then people get involved in drugs and mm -hmm. alcohol, self-harm, 
many you know shortening their own lifespan so it's great that you're on here now and you're such a powerful articulate speaker for this cause and we're just horrified that the government doesn't sentence these criminals they just give them little slaps on the wrist and the whole justice system needs turning upside down but hearing stories like yours just reinforces our mission statement to keep campaigning for that so just let the viewers know where they can find you and support you online Yes, yeah, so you can find me at um, an athletesilence.com, which is my webpage. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all over the place. Uh, Google me and you'll find me. That's probably one of the easiest ways. And Sean, I just want to thank you because what you do with this podcast, you are sharing views and, and truths that a lot of people are not wanting to look at. And yet you, you do it in such a way that people are able to hear it. So thank you so much. Thank you for saying that and that, you know, words like that inspire other people to come on and share their stories and that helps them heal as well. So thank you very much, my friend, John Michael. You take care. Cheers. You too. Thank you. Good night. Bye.